so anyway, welcome and thank you for coming. My name is Kurt Volker. I'm the director of the McCain Institute for International Leadership, which is a part of Arizona State University. And uh, I'm delighted to be able to welcome here the former Prime Minister of Israel, Ehud Olmert. Uh, one of the things that we have strived to do at the McCain Institute is place a focus on leadership. Uh, more questions about what makes a good leader, how do people make decisions, what are good examples that we can learn from, <coughs> rather than the traditional focus of, well, what's this foreign policy issue or this national security issue and, and have a discussion about it. That'll happen all over town anyway, but uh, as, a, as a McCain Institute leadership initiative, we wanted to take advantage of the presence of people like the Prime Minister or many others uh, who have uh, been through or that we are scheduling to talk to about some of their perspectives based on their unique experiences. So that's what we'll be doing here today. I hope you find that an interesting format. And uh, wanna also mention that um, uh, there will be uh, an after event, a little reception, uh, and I'll tell you about that at the, uh, at the end of our program. So thank you all for coming. There will be an opportunity also for audience comments and questions, so be thinking about that. We'll turn it over to you later, but uh, we'll get started here. So Prime Minister, thank, thank you, you very, very much. much. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. Uh, you want me to sit down? You can sit or stand as you like. I'll, I'll sit for a moment. <laughs> but um, I thought what I would do, uh, well, I'll stand as well. It'll be, uh, we'll make it more alive. No, I don't feel we'll comfortable. We'll make it more alive. <laughs> but, but I thought the first question that I would ask you. Yes. Uh, I, no, okay. <laughs> the first question that I would ask you. Um, All right. You know, I, I, I took a little bit of a more careful look at your biography. Obviously, you're a famous name uh, in Washington. People have known you as the prime minister and have known your name before and after that. Um, but um, you've made a remarkable journey in Israeli politics. That's right. Uh, starting with the Likud party and then helping found the Kadima party, working with uh, Prime Minister Sharon and then ultimately replacing him. So the first question I have for you is, what led you on that journey? What was your thinking as you took this unusual and, and uh, actually very strong political path? Thank you for the question and thank you for the invitation. This is the first time that I have this privilege to uh, be the guest of the uh, John McCain uh, Institute. Uh, I've been to this building a few times and uh, I'm very friendly with uh, Senator McCain and uh, I even hosted him uh, at the residence of the Prime Minister of Israel when he was a candidate for president uh, in 2008 and when he came uh, to a visit. And uh, I know him way back from uh, Phoenix, Arizona, uh, many, many years ago. Um, and I'm very happy to be here. And this is a very interesting, uh, uh, somewhat different from uh, what I've been doing in the last few days, trying to uh, do the impossible, which is to explain the Israeli policy, uh, to express my uh, position on some of the current issues, not to criticize, to criticize the Israeli government when I'm overseas and yet at the same time to make uh, a very explicit expression of why I think that the policy is the wrong policy. So, uh, you know, it's uh, 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 not so uh, uh, simple sometimes. But uh, maybe through uh, the uh, description of what I was uh, going through uh, in my political life, maybe I can also shed a certain light on some of these issues. 
Um, I was born to a very uh, um, uh, revisionist uh, Israeli family of uh, parents that uh, made uh, Aliyah to Israel, immigrated to Israel from China. Not too many uh, were there. My parents were born in Russia and the Ukraine, but during the first the communist revolution in 1917, they were escaping, uh, as quite a few uh, Jews did, and they found themselves in the northeast part of China in Harbin. Wow. As a small state, or as a small uh, township at that time, today it's only a city of about 12 millions. <laughs> uh, uh, which, uh, unfortunately, I never had a chance to take my parents with me back to this city, but I was there uh, several times. Now I'm an honorary citizen of uh, uh, Harbin, and uh, there is a Jewish museum there, and uh, it's very exciting. So uh, uh, my uh, family, both my parents were members of the uh, Revisionist Party, and uh, that's where I was born and I grew up. And, uh, and this was long before there was Likud. Mm. This is when the original Herut Party, the Freedom Party of Menachem Begin, was uh, the, the main representative of what then was the right wing of Israel. Uh, subsequently, there was the, uh, uh, um, the uh, Gachal bloc, the Liberal Party joined in, and later uh, a part of it uh, separated, and I was on that part that separated because we were not happy with the leadership of Menachem Begin, <laughs> strangely enough. And then we joined in to create the Likud. Uh, in 1973, and at that time I was elected, first time in my life, to be a member of parliament, and I was uh, consecutively for, uh, uh, until uh, nine, uh, 2009, uh, a member of parliament, which means that I was a member of parliament and uh, a mayor and a minister and a, a prime minister consecutively for 36 years. So it's, it's, it's quite a long career. And as you said correctly, I started on the right wing and I'm now considered to be in the center uh, towards the left, but this is somewhat inaccurate. And the reason it's inaccurate because now we judge someone, whether he's right or left, not by the traditional criteria of what is right and what is left, in, uh, in uh, uh, social positions, but uh, right is in favor of uh, occupying the territories, left is in favor of pulling out from territories. So in this respect, I'm left. But I'm not a socialist, mm -hmm. for instance. I haven't been a socialist, and I don't think I'll ever be a socialist. I'm, uh, I think on this, I'm somewhere, I'm not a socialist, but I'm certainly in favor of a of uh, uh, um, uh, policy on, on economic and social matters, which is much uh, more to the center than the traditional, uh, you know, uh, uh, free market, extreme free, ma free market economy. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and um, so uh, anyway, I, I moved from the uh, right wing on the issue of territories to, to the center and perhaps even 
to what is considered to be uh, left in Israel, uh, because I reached, uh, you know, I, I, I hope that I was courageous enough to look at the reality of life and to reach the inevitable conclusion that for many years I was wrong mm. in my attitudes uh, towards the, uh, uh, what I think can be the future of the territories and the future of Israel. Fundamentally, uh, it happened to me while I was mayor of Jerusalem. I was elected mayor of Jerusalem in 1993. I defeated Teddy Kolek. Mm -hmm. Just not in any way uh, to criticize, but, uh, you know, life is uh, very much influenced by perception, and sometimes perceptions are entirely different from reality. Uh, uh, when I was... Uh, uh, running for uh, mayor of Jerusalem against Teddy Kolek, it was a national event in Israel. It was far more than just another election for mayorship in some place, because Jerusalem is Jerusalem, and Teddy Kolek was a legendary figure for many, many years. And he was interviewed a year before the elections. And the interviewer asked him, uh, at that time there was some kind of a protest by the uh, Palestinians living in, the in uh, Jerusalem, and he was asked, Teddy Kolek was asked, what do you think of this protest? How could they do it to you, the person who did so much for the Palestinians and so much for the residents of Jerusalem, the Arab residents of Jerusalem, and look how they behaved? And he said to him, Teddy Kolek said to him, because he was a decent guy, he said, please stop with this blah, blah about what I did to the Palestinians. I never did anything to the Palestinians. I never helped them. I never supported them. I never did anything to uh, improve their quality of life. And it's time that we will understand it. The only time that we did something for the Palestinians in Jerusalem was when there was, uh, uh, the sewage was just uh, 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 streaming in the streets of uh, uh, an Arab neighborhood uh, in Jerusalem, which was divided. Part of it was inhabited by Arabs, and part of it was inhabited by Jews. And the Jews came to the mayor and said, listen, we will all suffer from uh, uh, diseases because you don't fix the uh, sewage system in the Arab part. So we fixed the system in the Arab part only in order to satisfy the Jews on the Jewish part. That's what we did for the Arabs in Jerusalem. I can say that I built 18 schools in the Arab side of Jerusalem that were never built during the entire 28 years of Teddy's uh, leadership as mayor of Jerusalem. And, uh, and uh, I invested 25 times more in the east side of Jerusalem than Teddy did in 28 years. I did it in 10 years. But all this has led me to the inevitable conclusion. I saw Jerusalem and I said, if there is one place in which, if we want to integrate the territories, and first and foremost Jerusalem into the state of Israel, as part of the state of Israel, then we have to do every possible effort to create equal conditions for the Palestinians living in the city of Jerusalem, particularly since as since Jerusalem, unlike the territories, was integrated into the state of Israel, they are entitled to have equal rights in the life of the country. And the fact is that after that time, after uh, 26 years, 
I was absolutely confident that we didn't do it and the chances are that we'll never be able to do it. And then I say to myself, if in the city of Jerusalem, which is the heart of the life of our people, and which is the most sacred place for us, if we can't create conditions of equality between Jews and Palestinians, how will we be able to do it in the entire territories? And that led me to the inevitable conclusion that the dream of greater Israel can't be realized without changing completely the nature of the state of Israel from a democratic Jewish state into something entirely different. And that we have to make a choice. And the choice is very painful maybe, but inevitable. If we want to have all the territories, including Jerusalem, then we will be a different country. We will not be a Jewish country and we will not be a democratic country. It will be something else. And since I wanted Israel to be democratic and Jewish, and this was a lifelong dream of the Jewish people, then I said to myself, you know, sometimes in order to save the life of a person, you have to cut part of his body. And we know this. So I don't think that the territories in, in what is known as the West Bank, and we call it Judea and Samaria, are historically part of the heritage of the Palestinian people. But they live there. And they are entitled to live there. No one will drive them out of these territories. So we have to give it up and to share the land and to create new conditions that will allow them to exercise their original rights uh, uh, for self-determination. And we'll live in a smaller country, but we will live at peace with our neighbors and at peace with ourselves. Mm -hmm. well, so at the end of uh, the answer to your question, I think the most important thing for any political leader, that uh, a lesson that I've learned over the years in different positions, I really, I think I fulfilled more positions in government and in public life than most people that ever uh, uh, played an important role in the life of our country. I was a minister in maybe seven different ministries. I was a minister of minorities, a minister of health, a minister of industry, a minister of labor, a minister of uh, uh, commerce, a minister of communication, a minister of finance, a uh, minister of interior, uh, uh, and a prime minister. So, uh, and, and a mayor of Jerusalem for 10 years. So I really was everywhere. The ultimate, the bottom line is very simple. You have to be able to take decisions. And sometimes it's not easy, but there is no alternative. If you want to be in a position of leadership, in a position of responsibility, you have to be able to take decisions. If you take decisions, you may be wrong. If you are wrong 20% of the time, you are still a great leader. <laughs> <laughs> now, you mentioned uh, in the course of that, you mentioned Menachem Begin. Um, how do you look back on his role in Israel now? Do you see him as a great leader for Israel? Absolutely. I think that, you know, uh, look, you know, I was mayor of Jerusalem. You know, every day when I woke up and I went out of my home, I could see where the sidewalks were. Uh, not fixed, and it, you needed to fix it. Where the uh, parks were not treated properly, and that you need to fix it. And I had called from the car, you know, the 
proper department in the municipality and tell them, by 12 o'clock, I want this to be fixed. And it was fixed. And I felt very happy and so on and so forth. So I built 100 new schools in Jerusalem during the 10 years. Every year I inaugurated 10 new schools because the city was uh, developing very rapidly and the population grows. Jerusalem is actually more populated than Washington. We have about 850,000 people living in Jerusalem. I think it's more than Washington, yeah. right? And Certainly more than DC. Yes. So, uh, so uh, but all these are important things. None is important as taking a decision about, for instance, sometimes defending your people and ordering soldiers to go uh, to fight knowing that some of them will not turn home. This is not easy, especially when you are prepared to meet their parents afterwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, to make peace, to know that in order to make peace, you have uh, to make concessions which are far beyond the expectations that you ever had about yourself and about your life and about your, you know, your, your ideology and about what you think is right and wrong. Now, Menachem Begin was talking about the integration of the territories of Judea and Samaria into the state of Israel. And everyone was certain that on the day that he will be elected, if ever he will be elected, which no one believed it will, the first thing that he will do is to integrate the territories to apply the Israeli law on the territories of Judea and Samaria. And I remember the night that Jimmy Carter, then the then president of America, called him. And I think he said to him, first thing, wait with your decisions, you know, he was petrified. <laughs> Menachem Begin immediately will change everything on the spot. And it turned out that he never applied the Israeli law, never integrated the territories into the state of Israel. He didn't do what he could have done, which is uh, to make one step or two steps forward. But the fact is that he pulled out from the entire Sinai and made peace with Egypt, something that was contrary to everything that he said. Now, I think that it is the greatest manifestation of the inner strength and leadership mm-hmm. that could be uh, uh, expressed by any person. To be able to do the opposite of everything that you said is not a show of weakness is the greatness of a person that understands when he is in power and the ultimate responsibility rests with him that he may have uh, been thinking something different when he was in a different place but now that the buck stops here and when you look back you see only the wall but nothing else and no one to take counsel with because it's your responsibility and you have to take the decision that you have the courage to take a decision that is opposite to everything that you stood for and to be able to face the people and tell them why you did it. And Begin had this courage. So it doesn't matter whether he was an effective day-to-day prime minister, whether he was, you know, an ex- a good executive. It doesn't matter. He was a great leader. Mm-hmm. A leader of historical proportions. And I admire him yeah. for that. Uh, he had a partner in this as well, uh, Anwar Sadat. Absolutely. You always need a partner. And when you look around the Middle East region, there have been great examples of great leaders, and there have been great failures of leaders That's right. as well. That's right. What are some of the others in the region that you would point to who've, who've shown the kind of ability to make decisions and the courage 
that you're just talking about? I think Rabin is another example. Rabin was the ultimate authority that decided on the Oslo agreements. I personally think, to this day, by the way, that there were many mistakes that we committed and we sh the Oslo agreement should have been different. Doesn't matter. The fact remains that at the time when Rabin decided on the Oslo agreements, <laughs> it's not only that had he refused to do it, he was the prime minister. But no one else in the Labour Party, certainly not pressed, by the way, who was very instrumental in building up the process of Oslo that led to the agreements, but didn't have the political power to impose the agreements on the uh, Knesset. Only Rabin could do it. And he rose to the challenge, to the opportunity, and he uh, carried out. He was, I think, a very... Uh, a very impressive uh, a show of great leadership and courage. And he paid with his life uh, uh, for this uh, show of leadership. Yeah. So this was another example. I think Sharon with the disengagement. Now again, I, I can take pride that I proposed it perhaps uh, first time when I spoke at the anniversary for Magnurion in his uh, grave 10 years ago. But I, could n I didn't have the political power to put this into uh, a process and to impose it and to carry it out. Mm -hmm. Sharon had. I, I, I was helpful to Sharon. I, I was with him the entire process. But Sharon, who was the father of all the settlements, mm -hmm. Sharon, who started the settlement movement that maybe, maybe, I hope not, will have will have changed history uh, 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 in the Middle East and, and maybe uh, cross the line of, of, of return. I hope not. Uh, but this was Sharon's greatest achievement. And he had the vision and the courage when he was sitting at the seat of the Prime Minister to say, we have to pull out. Now, we have to pull out. When he decided to pull out, he decided to pull out from the Gaza district, but people forgot that he also pulled out from the uh, uh, West Bank. It's true, only four settlements, but this was uh, very symbolic. Now, I'll tell you something that I don't think was ever published. So this is a great scoop now for the John McCain <laughs> Institute. All right, get it on camera. The original plan of Sharon was to pull out from 17 settlements in the West Bank. Hmm. And later, he was convinced by outsiders, not by Israelis, not by his partners, but out by outsiders that it was too much for one step. Better pull out from entirely from the Gaza Strip and from some settlements in the West Bank, but this is a beginning of a process which will continue later. But Sharon was prepared to pull out from 17 settlements oh. originally in the West Bank, which was very dramatic. So I think that th these uh, are three good examples for great <coughs> leadership. I think that Shimon Peres also must be given a great credit for the, uh, the road that he made. He was also... Uh, 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 don't forget that Paris 
was in favor of the uh, building the settlements at the beginning. Right. And and uh, he changed his position. He had the courage to again also to face reality mm-hmm. and to understand that the question is not what we believe belongs to us, but how we can build a future that will not be obsessed by the dreams of the past, but but the opportunities that uh, we can have for our children and grandchildren. And this was a great leadership. Yeah. And when you look around the, the world... And of course, I have to say that, uh, you know, Anwar Sadat is a great symbol. And I have to say, and I know that some of my Egyptian friends may not like it, but Mubarak kept this uh, uh, peace that we made with uh, Anwar Sadat for more than 30 years with great courage and determination. And he deserves a great credit for it because I think it made a great impact on the Middle East and on Egypt, and it was very important for all of us. So I think that they also manifested uh, a leadership of the highest level. Well, this opens up a whole topic that I wanted to get to, which is the Arab Spring. Because Mubarak was not challenged because of the relationship with Israel. He was challenged because of his governance at home and the way that was viewed. And I wanted to ask your views on, have we missed opportunities, have leaders missed opportunities for navigating a course in the Arab Spring between either authoritarianism at home or extremists who are trying to hijack revolutions when a majority of people would like to achieve the kind of justice and respect in society that Israel has achieved for its citizens. First of all, I'm very proud of the democracy of Israel. I think this is a great testament to the Jewish people and to the state of Israel that we have complete democracy. I mean, I don't think there can be a, a better democracy or, 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 you know, there are different systems of government in different countries. But I think there will be no doubt that there is a complete freedom of speech and freedom of religion in the state of Israel and uh, uh, for the Israeli citizens, uh, which is not the case in the territories. And that's why I think we have to pull out entirely from the territories and allow the Palestinians to exercise their right for self-determination. But uh, there is no question that there is, uh, for Jews and non-Jews alike, there is a complete democracy and freedom of speech and freedom of vote and political freedom and religious freedom in the state of Israel, and we are very proud of it. I don't know that there is any Arab country that has yet reached that level of democracy. Maybe the only country, the only non-country which practices democracy, which is still far from the democracy in the state of Israel, but which will become a democracy similar to Israel, I believe, is the Palestinian entity. Mm -hmm. And that's very interesting. I am very encouraged, in in, in the West Bank, of course, not in Gaza, where they are dominated by a terrorist organization. There is no question about it. Uh, But in the Arab countries, I think that the greatest... Now, uh, you know, I'm not an historian, but I'm an observer. In the last 40 years uh, of the events in the Middle East, and I had many talks with Arab leaders. Uh, some of them uh, were, I mean, it was known that I meet regularly with Mubarak, with King Abdallah. Uh, I met with others. Uh, I can't, of course, disclose the names and uh, the identities for obvious reasons. I have to defend them. 
the fact that uh, uh, we couldn't meet with uh, publicly and officially and openly with Arab leaders of countries that are not bordering with Israel and never had any any confrontation with Israel, and that they really want to have good relations with us and 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 maintain a degree of cooperation and exchange with Israel, but can't show it, is a disgrace. Uh, because that could have created an atmosphere that would have influenced also the possibility of having relations between us and the Palestinians on an entirely different way. But uh, there was always this argument coming from them that uh, there, there is too much influence of extremist, fundamentalist uh, movements that uh, if they will hold off uh, their hands uh, from, from uh, uh, the, uh, you know, uh, and, and listen the control on the day-to-day uh, -day life of the people, it may create uh, a terrible uh, disaster. And of course, uh, this is something uh, that is hard to argue. I uh, don't uh, accept this point of view. I think that democracy is always a recipe which is far better for the uh, health of the society and for the ability of uh, a society to grow and to improve uh, the quality of life uh, for its people. I remember talking with Mubarak about it, and he said to me, your friend, President Bush, he wanted democracy, now you have in Gaza, you have democracy. He insisted that the Hamas will participate in the elections. What did you get? Did you get democracy? And it was a sound argument, because we didn't get democracy in the uh, Gaza district, on the contrary, we got something which is, uh, I think, not the best for the people that live in uh, Gaza, and they suffered a lot as a result of the of the uh, of the brutality and the uh, and the extremism of uh, of the uh, of the government that controls and the and the organization that controls Gaza. On the other hand, uh, look what happened in Egypt. Mm -hmm. The people erupted. No one organized them. No one pushed them. No organization stood behind the 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 eruption of of discontent in Egypt, which led to the, uh, to the uh, uh, downfall of uh, uh, Hosni Mubarak. And on the other hand, uh, can we say that the Muslim Brothers uh, uh, represent uh, democracy in its truest form? I'm not certain about it. But I think that in spite of all the, uh, all the fears that they, the, the, the direction that the Arab Spring adopted is negative, I disagree. I think that everyone that took over in any of those countries that where the Arab Spring took place, in Tunisia, in Libya, and in Egypt, knows one thing, that the power of the, of the people in the street is stronger than any muhabarat, is any secret service and police and army together, that at the end of the day, if there will not be democracy, if people will not be happy, and they can only be happy when they can express themselves without any limitations and move without any constraints and, 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 and have living conditions which are sufficient in order to, to, to 
be happy and to provide their families with the basic conditions of good life, uh, then the leadership knows that they will be kicked out just as Mubarak was, just as uh, Gaddafi was. Mm -hmm. Nothing will help them because the people are stronger. Mm -hmm. I think that the Muslim brothers in Egypt are fully aware of that and that's why they are so careful not to actually exercise everything that is part of their philosophy and part of their ideology, but they are careful because they know that they will not escape from the same judgment right. at the end of the day. Right. It's interesting to watch how different leaders are reacting to that in the Arab world, because in, in Egypt, I think it's exactly as you just described, in Libya, Gaddafi tried to hang on and repressed the population and failed miserably. But now in Syria, Assad is doing the same thing and arguably is succeeding. For the time being, uh, and he's succeeding uh, partly because of the uh, enormous support. Unfortunately, Syria has turned out, because of geopolitical reasons, to be a point of, uh, let's put it in the milder terms, possible controversy between America and Russia, hmm. or the West and Russia. There are interests that Russia feels that it can't give up, and since no one knows who the alternative for, for Assad may be, then the Russians, I, th I think, believe that they need to exercise their, their uh, power to uh, uh, support and save uh, Bashar Assad. And yet, I'm not certain that they will succeed. I'm not certain that he will uh, prevail. And I suggest that we'll be patient, but because uh, uh, sooner than later, the opposition, no one can kill 100,000 of his own citizens and remain in power in this world. It is impossible. It will not happen in Syria, and it's on the way to, uh, to change. It's just a matter of time. So, you mentioned America and Russia. But uh, one can make an argument that Russia has been deeply involved with Syria, but the United States hasn't. Because Russia was deeply involved, and because America, I think, doesn't want to turn Syria into a, a point of confrontation. So if you're right, that a leader can't stay in power killing 100,000 of his own people, what do we do now? I think that the revolutionaries inside Syria will do, and that there are ways to help them, and I think that uh, some of these ways are, are uh, exercised. Mm -hmm. uh, quietly, without too many talks, but... Uh, they are, they are exercised, and I think that uh, eventually uh, Assad will collapse, regrettably, after killing so many of his own people. Right. Interesting. I want to turn it open to the audience. I know uh, you may have lined up a lot of questions here. Um, I'll start uh, here in the third row. Uh, Ted Katouf. Um, my name is Ted Katouf. I'm a former uh, U.S. diplomat. Uh, so I'll, I'll frame this in terms of leadership, but it's got a political dimension to it as well. Um, it's widely reported that you made what could only be described in Israeli terms as a generous offer to Mahmoud Abbas uh, concerning, concerning a two-state solution before you left office. Um, long before I left office. Long before you left yeah. office. Okay, well that makes it even more interesting then because I was going to ask you if you thought 
uh, either A, that he wasn't prepared himself to make the hard decisions, i.e. right of return uh, and the like, that he needed to make, or B, do you, uh, could it be that he thought you were on your way out and therefore uh, you would not be able to follow through with uh, the generous terms that you offered? Number one, I hope you don't mind if I say that these were generous terms not only by Israeli standards, but by objective standards. Uh, I think that uh, if you read the book, that uh, the memoirs of Condoleezza Rice, the former Secretary of State of the United States, she describes the evening in May of 2008, which was almost 10 months before I left office. I left office on the 1st of April 2009. So this was a long time before I left office. I described to her what I'm going to propose to, uh, at, the, at the 3rd of May to Abu Mazen, and, and she said that she was shocked and she was devastated, and she said, it's impossible that I hear what I hear. Is this the Prime Minister of Israel telling me this? He's talking about sharing Jerusalem with the Palestinians? It's impossible. And she says, I say to myself, write it down, write it down. And then she said, no, 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 listen to him, listen to him, look at him. And, and she was sh entirely shocked, and she said that I was very excited, and that she... She uh, that we didn't have dinner. This was supposed to be a private dinner, just her and me. And it turned out that every time the waiters came, I pushed them out and I said, go, go, go. And, uh, you know, I was talking and then she talked and then she said she ran to the uh, hotel and she used the safe line to the White House, but she said, I'm not certain that it was, uh, um, I was the only one, or the White House was the only one that heard me because in an Israeli hotel you never know. Although the line was safe, uh, I, I don't know. Uh, but um, uh, she said that she called the president, the president wasn't there, so she uh, talked to Steve Hadley, and I just now met with Steve Hadley, and she said to him, uh, Steve, tell the president that he was right about Olmert. He wants peace, but I'm afraid that he will die because they killed Rabin for far less. Mm. So uh, she thought that this was uh, uh, generous, not just by Israeli standards, but even by American standards. <laughs> now, why did uh, Abu Mazen not, uh, not uh, say, uh, didn't say yes? Look, at the end of the day, of course, you have to ask him, but First of all, Abu Mazen keeps saying all the time to everyone, including publicly to the Israeli TV, I never said no. Now, don't take it lightly. This is not just, a, you know, a, a manipulation. When a leader who is still the leader says, hey, about this plan, I never said no, he also sends you a message that I am here possibly to discuss it. So I am not yet in a position that I reject it because he's still in power. I'm not in power, but the plan is alive. Mm. And Abu Mazen says, I didn't say no. So this is something which is not insignificant. But of course, I expected him to say yes. I urged him to say yes. I begged him to say yes. I told him, President, it may not be 100% of what he wanted, although I thought it was 99.5% of what he wanted, of what the Palestinians always say they want. They wanted to be part, to have part of Jerusalem. They had every uh, part of Jerusalem back. 
They wanted to have uh, a, a, um, a position in the Holy Basin. I offered a trustee of five nations that will control without sovereignty for any nation, but without sovereignty for Israel. And with the United States, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, the Palestinians, and Israel in a trust that will control the uh, Holy Basin and will keep it as uh, uh, open for the uh, uh, every believer and, uh, of course, uh, 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 will uh, uh, provide uh, complete religious freedom for everyone. Uh, and, and this was what the Palestinians always wanted. And the territorial solution on the basis of the 67 lines with swaps of territories, which is what Obama said, which is what Bush said, which is what the Palestinians said. We are ready to make some adjustments in as long as this will be based completely on the 67 borders, which I proposed to them. So I really begged him, sign it, sign by initials, and let's go to the United Nations and change history and change the world. But one, he may have thought that I will not survive politically, although I'm not certain that at this time he had a reason to, to be certain about it, but he may have thought. Two, he heard the voices of some of my opponents in Israel and some of my supporters in Israel, which didn't encourage him, supporters with uh, quotation marks, uh, that may have been part of my coalition, but which were not entirely uh, in line with this policy, uh, which said to him, wait, why do you have to do it? And also, he had his own uh, difficulties at home with uh, opposition, with Hamas, with others that were against him. So if you put all of this together, you may get the feeling that he needed a little bit more time. And uh, I still believe that we can make peace on that basis. And I still believe that he can be with uh, Abu Mazen because I don't see any leader on the Palestinian side who is prepared to stand up for the principles that Abu Mazen adopted and it took him time. He wasn't uh, in that position when he originally started as number two to Yasser Arafat. But eventually he changed and he realized that there is so much that you can achieve. And I think that what finally what I proposed to him was that which could fulfill the dreams of the Palestinians for a separate state on the basis of 67 lines with Jerusalem, part of Jerusalem, but they always talked about the eastern part of Jerusalem as the capital of the Palestinians and of the a symbolic recognition of the suffering of Palestinians as a result of the war between Jews and Arabs. Also a symbolic recognition of the suffering of Jews because Jews suffered just as much and maybe more because Jews were expelled from many Arab countries, not just from one country as some of the Palestinians claimed that they were. So, but it doesn't matter. I'm not going to argue now about proportion. It doesn't matter. I think the principle was that we have to recognize that people suffered and we have to find a way to give it a symbolic, to make a symbolic gesture that will recognize it. And we were prepared to do it within the framework of the Arab Peace Initiative. But as I said before, maybe we needed a little bit more time. I, I always emphasize that, unfortunately, Abu Mazen never said yes, but equally at the same time, I emphasize that he never said no. 
and he still has an opportunity to say yes. Interesting. Very interesting. Okay, we had a few other hands here. First in the front row. Uh, thank you. Uh, my name is. There's uh, a microphone coming. Let me give that to you. Thank you, Prime Minister, for your interesting and thoughtful presentation. My name is uh, Abraham Avidor. Today marks the 46th anniversary of the beginning of the Six Days War. I happened to participate in that war as a young lieutenant in the Israeli Air Force. And uh, since then, there have been countless efforts to negotiate peace. Uh, you mentioned uh, Oslo, Madrid, Geneva, Camp David, and so on. So uh, the question now with the, with the current, following the election, and apparently the shift toward uh, in Israeli politics toward domestic <coughs> issues, and social, economic, and so on, is there any leadership uh, in the current cabinet who is really powerful enough to bring about uh, meaningful peace uh, with the with the um, with the Palestinians, uh, as uh, supported by the uh, Obama administration, or is this just another <coughs> effort to negotiate uh, without any uh, meaningful results? Thank you. Interesting. Uh, the uh, uh, brief answer. Uh, is there a leader that potentially has the power, uh, uh, could have the power to do it? The answer is yes. Is there a leader who is prepared now to exercise this potential and to fulfill this promise remains to be seen. I don't know. Certainly not the prime minister, but there are other leaders and they can influence. Hmm. It's interesting, especially in light of what you said about Menachem Begin coming from the very strong right position and being the one to make those choices. That's right. Okay, there was one. There's. Um, we're going to take a couple in a row. I think we'll do two and two. So uh, if we could start with the gentleman here, and, and there's a microphone coming. Okay. I have a. Uh, I'm Dan Whitman, formerly with the State Department. I have a two-word question, John Kerry. <laughs> uh, first of all, I'm a good friend of John Kerry. I like him very much. I'm, I'm very happy with his determination to carry on and, and uh, uh, to, uh, uh, to try and convince the two sides to make the necessary adjustments that will allow them to sit together and discuss the issues. I hope that the Secretary of State will convince his president uh, to support him in a manner that will give strength to the initiative of the Secretary of State, because we have to be uh, very uh, open about it. A Secretary of State, any Secretary of State, can do that much. He needs the President to support him publicly and powerfully in order to have the necessary uh, uh, power to uh, convince the sides to go on that line. And I hope that Kerry will be uh, uh, strong enough, influential enough on his president, just as he will be influential enough on the uh, parties involved in the conflict. I don't suppose you've seen the plan. He says he has a plan here. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen the uh, broadcast. All right, just behind. Dana Marshall, uh, also former government official and with Transnational Strategy Group now, Mr. Prime Minister. Question is on uh, economics and commercial uh, possibilities to try to bring the countries together. The region has seen, and you know this better than anyone, the uh, power of commercial arrangements, the QIZ program in better days between uh, Egypt uh, and uh, Israel. I did it. You, exactly. And, and also, for example, the power of 
business between Turkey and Israel to keep those countries together. My question is simply this. Is it realistic to imagine, given the government we have in Cairo now, that, that, that business uh, could be a way to bring these two countries together? Business can be helpful. Business will not replace the political accommodations that are necessary in order to make it possible. Uh, I think that the two agreements that we made on the quiz, both with Jordan and with Egypt, were enormously helpful for the economies of those countries. Uh, I remember the days that I was arguing with some Americans who came to me and said to me, what the heck, why do you, why do you uh, uh, squeeze us so much to make a concession to Egypt that will cost thousands of jobs in America? Because Egypt has an advantage over China. Uh, Egypt has the raw material for uh, cotton, the best in the world. And also they have inexpensive uh, manpower, uh, labor. So they have both things, the raw material and the inexpensive uh, labor. And, and, uh, and they insisted also in that the, the quiz will contain maybe half of the territory of Egypt, which is quite big anyway. In a matter of two or three years, they created 400 manufacturing facilities as a result of this agreement with tens of thousands of jobs and billions of exports to America. And the Americans came to me at the beginning and they said, why do we need to do it? Why do they deserve to get it? And I said, look guys, if there will be a one day war between Israel and Egypt, it will cost you 10 times more than anything that you may lose as a result of this agreement. But if there will be an agreement that is rewarding the Egyptians with billions of dollars of exports, it will be another barrier against uh, 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 the possible eruption of hostilities, even if there will be a disagreement between Israel and Egypt in the future. And I think that, therefore, economic cooperation is important. But at the same time, economic cooperation, which exists between us and the Palestinians. I am now chairing a company, okay, a conglomerate, which is doing a lot of business with the Palestinians. But it's not sufficient to overcome the political barriers. And therefore, what I suggest is this. Everywhere where we can do business together is great. Why? Because if you do business only when the two sides can make money, right? Otherwise, you don't do business. They will not do business if they can, can, can't benefit from it, and will not do business if we can't benefit from it. So if two sides can benefit from it, it's good. It does good for the economy of the other side. It does good to the economy of Israel. But let's not uh, fool ourselves that this can replace the necessary political adjustments that both of us have to make in order to make this into a real, genuine, comprehensive peace between us and them so that we will live without terror, that we will live with a different atmosphere of cooperation and friendship, which is so necessary for our region. Okay, in the back there's a question, and we're running out of time, so we'll keep it brief. Back there, we'll take two, so we'll go back Hi. here first. 
My name is Alan Mendelson. I'm just a citizen of Washington. First, I want to thank you very much for such interesting remarks. I'm sure we are all very, very uh, interested in them, and I'm sure you have a lot of voters here today who would be prepared to elect you. Secondly, <laughs> secondly, I want to ask you uh, what you uh, think about the Abu Mazen demand that uh, if the settlements be uh, given to uh, Palestinian control, they be freed of all Jews. I want to know what you think about that and also whether you think it's possible there, there is another question. He, uh, you That's suggested, one there. Yes. We'll take the back row uh, briefly, and then uh, we'll turn it back to you. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, my name is Kami Butt, and I write for the Pakistani Spectator. And my question, if, if Senator McCain asks you that who is smart, Obama or Bush too? Bush too, who borrowed billion or trillion of dollars from China and dumped in this small hole called Middle East and gave thousands of American lives, and on the other hand, you have Obama who doesn't want to give a single American life. And basically, he is suggesting, let these crazy people kill each other. Mm. We don't need to get involved with this. Thanks. Interesting. OK. <laughs> <laughs> uh, first of all, the question about um, uh, the proposal of uh, Abu Mazin. Look, we have to separate from the Palestinians. There is no way that we can remain in the territories even if they will be given to the Palestinians, to, uh, to uh, what will become as a Palestinian, independent Palestinian state, because it will be, uh, uh, this is a prescription for almost endless confrontations. There, and, and they will uh, create uh, chaos and, and, and brutal uh, engagements on both sides, and this is not what we want. Look, we have to give up the dream of greater Israel. I know it's heartbreaking. Believe me, I said in a different meeting today, the day that I sat in front of Abu Mazen in the study of the, uh, uh, the residence of the uh, Prime Minister of Israel in Jerusalem, and I was very close to him, even closer than we are, because, uh, you know, set up in the room. And I looked in his eyes and I said, Mr. President, here is my plan, which included the sharing of the city of Jerusalem, coming from the person that was the 10 years, the mayor of Jerusalem, and the champion of what is known as the united, undivided city of Jerusalem. <coughs> to have said it to him, for me, it was one of the most difficult moments of my life. And believe me, I've been through some. But I felt that if I have to make a choice between peace, between future without wars and without terror, and I knew that this will not come momentarily, that even if we'll pull out from the territories, there still may be terror for a while. I knew it. And yet I knew that there is no alternative to it but that we will pull out and separate from the Palestinians until both sides will learn to live at peace with each other, which may take some time, but we need to be separated. Therefore, all these artificial solutions are not realistic, and I don't accept them. We have to keep three centers because there is so much that realistically we can do to pull out from. But these three centers of uh, populations, of Jewish population in the territories will comprise only less than 6% of the population, of the territories. 
less than 6% of the territory. So we are talking, and we will swap territories with the Palestinians in areas which are very meaningful and very uh, solid, not just, you know, desert parts of Israel. I think that this is the only solution. And this is hard. It's hard to accept it. It is hard to live with it. And you sometimes, you know, you revolt against it and you say, why the heck can't they be more flexible? Why do they have to insist on 100%? Why can't they understand that things have changed, the realities have changed, they have to adjust to it? Maybe they are wrong. But let's be smart rather than just when what we need is peace that will create an entirely different Middle East. Mm -hmm. Now, as uh, for you, look, I, I, I may have an opinion, but I don't want to disclose it. <laughs> I'm not an American. I'm not an American. I, I, uh, I don't think that it, it will be proper for a former prime minister of Israel to say who is smarter, George Bush or uh, 43rd, right? And, uh, and 44th, uh, they are great, two great Americans. Oh, very diplomatic <laughs> answer. The, the final question that I always ask people, and I'd like to ask you, is when you look at a next generation of rising leaders around the world, yes. what advice would you like them to take to heart? Sleep well. <laughs> Honestly. The most important thing for any leader is to sleep well. If someone thinks that leadership is measured by dramas, that, you know, you wake up in the middle of the night because they call you from the situation room, you know, there is something in Afghanistan or in Pakistan, and, and the president would not sleep the rest of the night and to, to deal with that. Sleep well. <laughs> Keep cool. <laughs> Don't be overexcited and take decisions. Take decisions, 10 a day, no more. But take meaningful decisions, you know, one after the other. Don't work too hard. Enjoy your life. Watch soccer. <laughs> Not necessarily American football, but if you insist on American football and on baseball, you know, I will not fight with you. Even on NBA, I love uh, American <laughs> basketball. Uh, uh, honestly, and one thing, have a vision. Have a vision, that is, don't wake up in the morning and ask yourself, what am I going to do today? You have to know what you want to do in four years or six years or eight years, which is significant and important. You have to have a vision. Mm -hmm. and, and that has to guide you and to lead you. The rest will come with this vision. But as I said... Don't be obsessed with every detail of everything because it's impossible. You have to be focused. You have to be able to concentrate on that which is important and do it with love. Mm. It's important. Do it with love because if you don't have love in your heart, you will not be a good leader. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank you. Thank you.